This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Well, let me backtrack a little bit. When we ended Matthew chapter 23, Jesus there told the scribes and Pharisees that Jerusalem and the temple, he told them that it would be destroyed uh, and that he would, uh, that they, the Jewish leaders, would stand before him on the last day and be eternally judged by him. Uh, and the disciples are shocked by this and they're amazed by this. Uh, and they ask Jesus when Jerusalem and when the temple, uh, when the end of the world will be. And he tells them, uh, that they're not one event, which is what they thought it was, but actually two separate events. One would take place in their generation uh, and one way in the future. And he gives them signs which will be normal uh, throughout the whole New Testament era, which he calls birth pains. And as we get closer to the end, these birth pains, he says, are going to intensify. Uh, and then when no one expects it, uh, the heavens and the earth will start to come apart, and the one who held it all together, who held the world and the universe together by the power of his word, since the creation of all of it, is going to let it loose. It'll spiral out of control, and then all men, all men will see the Son of Man coming uh, in the clouds with great power and with great glory. And we read that all men will be wailing and mourning and weeping in great horror and fear. Uh, because they know who's coming, and they know why he's coming, and they know that it is to judge them. And the last thing that men want is to stand before the wrath of the Lamb. So Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen, but he doesn't tell them, he doesn't tell them when it's going to come. He says, because no man can know the day or the hour of his return. Therefore, he wants them and us uh, to always be watching and to always be ready and to make sure that we're really his disciples, because many believe they know him, but in the end, they never really knew him, and that's because he never really knew them. So to drive this point home, uh, and, the, and the unexpectedness of it, he gives them some illustrations and parables. Uh, and he, he said, when he comes again, it'll be like in the days of Noah. When men heard the gospel, they saw the ark being built, right? But they didn't believe. They didn't truly believe at all, actually. And when the rains came, they perished. Because it was life as usual. Same old, same old. Men living for themselves. And then the flood comes, and they all perished. And he says it'll be like families working in the field and at the mill. Again, life as usual. People just going about the daily routine of living. But he says one will be taken and one will be left. And then he told them about the faithful and wise servant and the evil servant. Uh, that one did his master's will. When the master went away and one didn't. But when the master comes back unexpectedly, uh, there's going to be consequences for the evil servant. And that would be uh, damnation. Then he told them, as we looked last week, at the parable of the, of the ten virgins. He says five were wise or were wise and five were foolish. And as they waited for the bridegroom to come uh, so, so they could start the wedding feast. Uh, but, but five of them, we read, had oil for their lamps and five did not. Or five were ready and five were not. And what we found was that the ten virgins represented professing Christians at large. The five wise represented those who were truly born again and the Spirit of God lived in them. They had the Holy Spirit. The five foolish represented those who claimed to be Christians but were not. So five truly were saved, 
The five were not. Although all certainly thought they were saved. And Jesus ends that parable with a very stern warning in verse 13. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour at which the Son of Man is coming. Well, the parable of the talents is a continuation of Jesus warning us to watch and to be ready and to make sure that we are really in his kingdom. He wants us to be aware that when he comes again, there will be many who sat in churches, maybe even for the chunk of their lives, and were called Christians and who did Christian kind of things, but will end up in hell. And these parables are to warn us and to prompt us to make our calling and our election sure. And the difference between the parable of the virgins uh, and now the parable of the talents is that the virgins has to do with the heart and the talents has to do with the hands, if you will. Or one has to do with your position in Christ and the other your labor for him because of that position, right? Or which is the evidence that you're in Christ. Or one has to do with salvation and the other has to do with sanctification, right? One has to do with waiting while the other has to do with working. So the five virgins, they, was, they are the saved, Right, the wise virgins are the saved, and, and those who are saved are the faithful and wise servants. Well, with that said, I'd like to look at this parable of the talents using a three-point outline. And that is the giving of the talents, the use of the talents, and then the misuse of the talents. And so let's look first again at verses 14 and 15, the giving, the giving of the talents. All right, and there we read this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Well, Jesus will again tell his disciples what the kingdom of heaven is like, their kingdom parable. And he says it's like a wealthy man who has servants, and these servants are managers or stewards of his household or of his business or of his stuff. And he goes on a journey, and from verse 19, we know that he is away for a long time. And so he calls his servants together, uh, and he gives, he gives them his goods or his money or his, or his talents to them for the purpose of making him a prophet. So he gives to one servant five talents and to another two talents, and yet to a third a one talent. And he gives them out, we read, according to their own ability. Now the word talent here does not mean what we think a talent means today, or to have talent today, which is an ability, as we would say, to do something. So, you know, Lewis has a talent to play the guitar. Benny, I'm pointing to nobody here, has a talent to play the drums. That's a talent. It's a gifting. It's an ability. All right? So we would say that. But, but a talent in that day was actually a measure of weight. Uh, and, and coins were frequently weighed in talents. Uh, and, and coins were either made out of gold or silver or copper. Most commonly, it would be silver. And so one talent... One talent was equal to 3,000 shekels or 50 minas, which I know means nothing to most of us, or this would mean something. One talent was roughly 15 years of wages. 15 years of wages. So you can see one talent was extremely valuable. Extremely valuable. It was worth a lot of money. And yet the master will call the five talents he gave to the man with the five talents and the two talents he gave to the man with the two talents. He says, just a few things. I've given you just a few things. In other words, this guy is extremely wealthy. He's an extremely wealthy man. Now, so far in the parable, the master of the servants represents, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, they are his own servants. And the servants 
represent all those who profess to be his disciples, just like the ten virgins. Where the ten virgins represented everybody who claims to be a believer, so too, right, the servants represent all of those who claim to be believers. And the master gives the servants his goods, or talents. And the talents represent, as J.C. Ryle would say, anything whereby we may glorify God. Anything whereby we may glorify God. And that could include our gifts, our abilities, our intellect, our personalities, our knowledge, our position in life, our uh, uh, capacities, our money, our possessions, our time, strength, uh, affections, ability to reason, opportunities that we have in life, um, spiritual giftedness, spiritual benefits, and so on. It is everything that makes us us. right? So, So God has wired us and crafted us and given us many things that make us, us. Now we see in the parable that the master gives different amounts of talents according to each servant's own ability. All right, so the servant who was given five talents was able to handle or equipped to handle five talents. And the servant who was given two talents was able or equipped to handle two talents. And the one who received one could handle one or but one. And what this tells us is that though all Christians are equal in Christ, and though all are saved by Christ, and and all will be in glory with Christ, they're not all equal in this life. Their giftings and abilities and their capacities vary. They just do. But although we are not all equal in talents, we should all be equal in effort. We're not all given the same stuff and the degree of the same stuff, as we'll look at in a second, but we should all have the same effort. Right? So, so the, the servant with the two talents was, was equal in effort to the servant with the five talents. They each doubled their master's money. So the guy who's the third-string quarterback on a team should work just as hard as the guy who's the first-string quarterback on a team. Listen, Epaphroditus was not as gifted as Timothy, clearly. He wasn't as gifted as Timothy, but he labored just as hard as Timothy, even to the point of almost losing his life. So we do have differing talents, uh, which will lead to differing results, but we should all be yielding results, and that's the point. We should all be yielding results from what God has given us. And God, in his sovereign will, has made us different. He has. He is determined, and he's the determiner, of what we are and what we have and what we can do. So some have greater intellect. Some have a bolder personality. Um, you know, some, some are quicker and sharper, and some are not. Some can easily grasp doctrine and, and theological concepts, and some not so easily. And some have great memories. And, like me, some don't. Some are, are gifted teachers and communicators, and some are not so. Some have skills and abilities that enable them to be really very prosperous and faithful in the kingdom. And and some have just very little and just get by. The point is that God has uniquely and sovereignly crafted each and every one of us the way he wanted to. And it was his prerogative to do so. You see, you are exactly how he wanted you to be. You are. And I am as well. Therefore, that's it if that is true. And it is. We should never envy what another person's capacities or abilities are. Nor should we complain or feel slighted for what we lack. Because you know what that is ultimately saying? Well, God made a mistake if that's the case. And you know and I know God doesn't make mistakes. 
And and God gave you what he gave you so that you would glorify him with what he gave you. And so therefore, there's no room for boasting, right? And there's no room for complaining. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, For who makes you differ from one from another? Who does? And what do you have that you did not receive? What? It's a rhetorical question, of course. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. John the Baptist said to the disciples in, in John 3, 27, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from above. You can't, you can't receive anything unless God gives it to you. And James says every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light. So if he's given you this much, that's good. And he's given you this much, that's good too. And we know from 1 Corinthians 1.12 that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, distributes to each one individually as he wills. And Ephesians 4.11 and 12 says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. All right, Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God gives as he desires for the sake of raising up his own people. Romans 12, 6 to 8 says that we've been given gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. And then he lists prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, and mercy. The point is this. The point is, 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 is God is the one who gives gifts as he wills. As he wills. And he gives five talents to people he equips to handle five talents. And he gives two talents to people he equips to handle two ta- talents and so on. And listen, there is no shame. There is no shame having one talent or having two or maybe given a half a talent. There's no shame in any of that. And there is no superiority in being given five talents or being given ten talents, right? In fact, Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, for, every, for everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. Therefore, it is not what you are given that counts, but rather how you use what you've been given, how you use it. And the Lord gives us what he gives us, so we will use it for him, ultimately to glorify him. Or to use the money analogy of the parable to make him a prophet, to make him a prophet. And that's because we are his servants. And, and, and Christ has gone away for a long time, meaning, right, the master has gone away, meaning from the ascension to his second coming, he's gone away. He's in heaven, reigning on his throne there. And while he is away, or while he is reigning from heaven, we ought to be watching and waiting. And that means we're to be laboring, we're to be productive for him. Right? And the labor that we are to be doing is kingdom labor. And kingdom labor exalts and glorifies the king. That's what kingdom labor does. And every person that he saves, every single one, he gives the ability to live for him and to labor for him. And he gives the grace that is required to do that such thing. And you know, as his servants, we're not just a bunch of free agents running around, you know, using our talents if we're in the mood or if we feel like it. No, none of this, I'm tired, I'm going to go rest 
I'm going to take a break from the kingdom stuff for the next couple of years. None of that stuff. We don't get vacations. We don't take sabbaticals from serving Christ. We were purchased by Christ. We're a slave of Christ. He owns us. He bought us with his own blood. Paul said so, for you were bought at a price. Right? 1 Corinthians 6.20, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He owns it all. He owns your body. He owns your spirit. Christ has bought you. So when you don't use what God has given you for God, you're actually messing with God's stuff. And you don't want to mess with God's stuff, right? And so we see the giving of the talents. Now let's look at the use. It's a big chunk, 16 to 23. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received the two gained two more also. But when he had received... But he who had received the one went and dug in the ground uh, and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, uh, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought, the f- and brought another five talents, saying, Lord, you have delivered to me these five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, once the master goes away, the very first word we read in verse 16 is then. Then. Then he who had, right? Then. And then uh, is... Translated in the NASB immediately. Or in the ESV or the NIV, it's translated at once, which I believe is a much better rendition of the word. Uh, and what this tells us, this immediately or at once, uh, it tells us that as soon as the master gave the talents to, the, to the, five, the five talents to his servant, that servant immediately started trading or investing his Lord's money. And and verse 17 says the second guy, the guy who got the two talents, he did the same exact thing. He didn't sit around. He started working. They didn't wait to see how how it might go or what might be a convenient time to start investing the Lord's stuff. Right? Uh, They they didn't do that. Uh, They didn't take a six-month vacation or let me just go and sow my wild oats and then I'll start to put these talents to use. No. As soon as they were given the talents, they went ahead and from the get-go, they started investing the talents. And this tells us that, that, the, that, that Christians start living for Christ from the moment he saves them. They don't wait to learn a lot about Jesus. They don't wait for the circumstances to get a little easier or better or for their unsaved spouse to warm up to this whole thing anyway. No, they start living for Christ from the get-go. Listen, they may not know much about the Bible, but they want to live for him. Right? They want to learn about him. They want to talk about him. They want to pray to him. They want to serve him. Right? And they want to share him with others and, and to be around the people that actually love him as well. When I was first saved back in 1991, I immediately started sharing the gospel with other people. I didn't have a clue about doctrine. I was a doctrinal mess. And, and I was graceless as well. I was like a bull in a china shop just rolling over people. Right? And, and it was all wrong and God had to temper me and beat me down and all that kind of stuff. But, but even though I knew so little and my, my method was so hard, I just, I just had a desire to share the good news with other people. I knew this much. 
I knew that I was a sinner. I knew Jesus saved me. And I knew people needed the same, the same thing. I knew other people needed to hear that as well. And so I wanted to tell them. And I was compelled to tell them. Listen, new Christians are still Christians. Well, I was just saved. I really don't know what to do. I don't want to tell them. No, you know you were a sinner and under the wrath of God. And you know God saved you. Tell them that. That's enough. Tell them what you know. Right? Jesus expects all of his people to live for him. Not for you to get warmed up. Not for you to gain some knowledge. He expects you to live for him. Once you're born again, you are in his kingdom. You're in his kingdom. And the king expects and requires that you serve him. And, and no believer gets a pass here. Right? No believer, young or, or old in the faith. Well, I've been doing this for 50 years and I'm just sitting back and letting the young guys do it. No. No believer gets a pass. There's no retiring from the kingdom. None. You know, you don't put in your time and then go to Shady Acres and drink sweet tea on some porch swing somewhere, you know, and say, well, life was good, man. I can't wait to go home. You don't do that. You don't do that. Your abilities and your capacities, they may change, they may diminish, but you will serve him till he calls you home. You will. Many years ago, I went to visit uh, Angie Sierra in a nursing home. And Angie is the, the mother of Frank, who's one of the uh, trustees at North Shore Baptist and the grandmother of a slew of people in North Shore Baptist as well. And Angie's a Christian woman, and she's gone home to be with the Lord since. Uh, but she was like 85 years old, and she was in a nursing home. So I went to go visit her. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, what can you do in a nursing home, quite honestly? And so she's sitting there in the wheelchair, and there's another two ladies sitting next to her. And it was one of the ladies next to her. It was her birthday. She was 95 that day. And so they were having a little cake for her. And the woman next to her was not a believer. And so, so they sang happy birthday. And Angie said to this woman, and I forget her name now. Now here's the 85-year-old Angie talking to the 95-year-old woman who's not a saved woman. And she says to her, don't be happy that it's your birthday. You don't know Jesus. You need to be saved. And how much time do you think you have anyway? You need to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, look at this. <laughs> she's, she's sharing with the only people around her. A 95-year-old woman who maybe doesn't connect at all, but she's telling this lady, you need to be saved. You don't stop. You don't retire from the kingdom. You use what God has given you, where he has put you, for him. So no retiring from the faith. No easing into the faith. We read in Philippians 1.5 that from the time the Philippians were first saved, Paul says that they were fellowshipping and co-laboring with him in the gospel. You see, from the very beginning, then the very beginning when God saved them, they were gospel-minded. Hey, we just can't hoard this stuff. We just can't like be all about us. We need to share it with other people. Paul, let us help you. Paul, let us do whatever we need to do to help you. We want to co-labor. Well, the servant who had five talents trades his five talents and makes another five talents. And the servant who has two talents, he trades his two talents and makes another two talents. So these guys are busy. They are busy servants, each making 100% profit on the master's money or 100% gain. And that means that they lived for Christ. And then they used everything God had given them to advance his kingdom. That means that they were redeeming the time, as we're told in Ephesians 5. Like the athlete who is busy training and training and training for the competition, or like the farmer who is busy plowing and sowing and reaping and all that other stuff, right? they too were busy. They used their master's stuff and it increased. And this increases fruit, fruit unto God. Jesus said in John 15 that God is glorified when you bear much fruit. 
And this fruit is also akin to the good works that we were created in Christ Jesus for, right? That's what they are. Works which we're told in Ephesians 2.10 that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And good works are, are like talents. They're anything that we do that brings God glory. You see, it's all about motive of heart. And this is why we're told in Titus to show ourselves to be a pattern of good works and to be zealous for good works and to be careful to maintain good works. And with all of these imperatives and with all of these commands, the question is to you and I today, how are we using our talents? How are we using them? How are we using our talents? How are we using our time? Our giftings, our abilities, our monies, our possessions, our resources, etc. Are you and I paying an eternal dividend to the Lord? Are we busy with his stuff? Are your treasures in heaven? Or are they on the earth? Are you busy with the Lord's business? Or are you only busy with your business? Are you actively laboring to see Christ magnified in you and through you? And would your day planner, monthly planner, wallet, phone record, would it affirm that? Could you and I say like Paul, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Because if you can then you are making 100% on the Lord's money. That's what you're doing, or on his talents. Well, in verse 19, the master finally returns, and he wants to settle accounts with his servants. And the servant with the five talents comes, and he says, look, look. And the word look tells us he's excited. Right? You know, like when a little kid makes something, and you come home, Daddy, Daddy, look what I made. Right? They want to show it to you. They're excited. Man, I did something big. I did something exciting. I did something beautiful. And I want to show it to you. Look. And it tells us he's excited. And he's glad to show his master that he's doubled his money. Look at this. You gave me five. Boom. I got ten. Look at that. Look what I did. Uh, And that's the exact same thing that happens with the second servant. It's like, Lord, you gave me five talents. Or you gave me two. And I was real busy. And I was real zealous. And I was real dedicated and devoted to you. And I I worked hard, Lord. I worked hard and I doubled your money. And notice that both servants say that it was the master's money. It was his money, his talents. They knew it wasn't theirs. And, And they gladly and they obediently labored long and hard to increase it. No shortcuts, no breaks, no three easy steps to sort of increase this thing, right? They, they, they lived to serve the master, right? Listen, we live to serve the master. But our ultimate motivation is love. His love for us, thus our love for him. It's the motivation. You see, if it's not the motivation, then what you have is legalism. Or, or, you know, some sort of formalism. Uh, it's the motivation. The writer of Hebrews said in, 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 in chapter 6, verse 10, that God is not unjust to forget, here it is, your work and labor of love. It's a labor of love. Work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you minister to the saints and do minister. Right? It's, it's, 
It's not work and labor of obedience. It's not work and labor of duty. Right? He says he says he is not he is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. Love. So from a heart of love, we serve him by ministering to others. By a heart of love. We see a beautiful picture of this or an example of this in Acts 9 with a woman named Tabitha who also goes by the name of Dorcas. And we're told that she was full of good works and acts of charity. And, and listen, she didn't heal the sick. She didn't hold evangelistic crusades. Right? She didn't write commentaries. She didn't do any of those things. You know what she did? She cared for the widows by making them tunics and other garments. You see, she did what she could with what she was given. And that was well-pleasing to the Lord. And that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. There's a believer in Mark Judy's church in, uh, in Greenfield, Indiana. And I met him when I was out there. And I forget the guy's name. It's not uncommon for me, actually. Uh, but he owns a, a, small, a small like car paint shop in downtown Indianapolis. And it's small. It's like a, a five- or six-man shop. And they, they paint cars uh, that get you know, beaten up. And so uh, every Tuesday... It used to be Mark, but now it's one of the other guys, one of the elders. Uh, they'll go to this guy's shop, and they do a Bible study in his shop from 11, 11 o'clock to 12 noon. One-hour Bible study every Tuesday. Uh, and the owner, the guy who owns the shop, what he does is this. He tells the five or six guys that work for him, he, he tells them, come to the, if you come to the Bible study, I'll pay you for that hour. For that one hour of work that you won't be working, I'll still pay you for it. But you've got to come to the Bible study and I'll pay you for the hour. Because they're paid by the hour. You see, this brother, he does what he can with what he has. I own a shop. They work for me. I can't force them to do this. But hey, you want a free hour of work? You want a free hour of, of money? Come sit in the Bible study. And guess what? They all do. Because it's, it's a free hour. But he wants him to hear the gospel. And so he does what he can with what he has. He does what he can with what he has. Now listen, you may not be a preacher, you may not be a teacher, you may not be a street evangelist, but you can make a meal for someone who's hurting. You can give a ride to someone who needs it. You can encourage the downcast. You can visit the lonely. You can help the sick. You can send a kid to youth camp on your dime. You can work with the children in children's church. You can help fund VBS and serve. You can pay a bill for a struggling saint. You can help clean up the church after the service. And on and on and on. The list is endless. There are a million ways you can show the love of Christ to others. There are a million ways. And to serve in his kingdom. There is no end to this. It would take years to write down all the things we can do because we are people who have needs and struggles. Right? There are, and, 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 and the gospel needs to go out and on and on and on. We are all capable and equipped to do so to some degree. Oh, I don't have any of that gifting. I can't do this stuff. I don't know how to do that. You can make a phone call. You can give a ride. You could visit. You could help. You could, you could encourage the hurting. Paul said, Paul said, in Colossians 1.29, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which is working in me and works in me mightily. You see, we are all capable 
We are all capable, if Christ is in us, we are capable for him to come out of us. Because he's working in us. It would be very odd if we claim to be believers and Christ is in us, and none of that ever comes out of us. It would just be a contradiction. He also said in 1 Corinthians 15.10 that he labored more abundantly than all the other apostles. Oh, Paul, he's a braggart, isn't he? I did all more than all the other guys. Well, first of all, he did. But he says this. He says, he says, because of the grace of God that was in me. Not because of me, because of God moving in me. I couldn't help myself. So Paul was a faithful servant because he used what God had given him for God. And if we are using what God has given us for God, then we too are faithful servants. And the principle here is this. God is not impressed with numbers. He is not impressed with numbers. He is not impressed with the the size of what you do. He is not impressed with that. Guess what he's impressed with? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Which is why the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he says it to the first servant and to the second. Not, not well done, good and successful servant. Not well done, good and prosperous servant. Not even well done, good and obedient servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. And faithful means loyal, dependable, diligent, trustworthy. And good, which in this context, it, it means something useful or beneficial. Like when Jesus says salt is good. Now when Jesus says well done... It's as if he's saying, excellent job. That a boy. Right? That's what he's saying. The master's well pleased. He's well pleased with the labor of the servant. So good and faithful conveys that. It's, he's well pleased. But it also conveys the character of the servant. Not only the labor, but the character. And, and, and you know good and faithful servants, they're not ashamed. Here's the character. Not ashamed to proclaim the Lord of the gospel. It's not ashamed to tell people about his Lord or her Lord. They're not afraid to roll up their sleeves and do what needs to be done in the kingdom to bless others. I don't do that. I don't do sweeping. I don't do the bagels. I don't watch the kids. They don't do that. Where is it? What can I do? I'm rolling them up. I don't teach the kids. I don't give rides. That's too far. You understand we do that sometimes. We, you know, I'm the pastor. You're not going to find me carrying a sign outside. We do that as if we're something. We're nothing. He's everything and we're nothing. We need to have that mentality. He's well pleased when we roll up our sleeves and do what needs to be done to bless others. Right? And they will spend and be spent for the sake of souls. If you don't care about the lost, you have, oh, listen, you know what? Let them hear the gospel. Turn on the radio. It's on you know, 570 once in a while if you catch a good preacher. You know? Well, family radio, if he doesn't listen to camping, you'll hear the gospel here and there. No. You care about the lost because you were lost. And Jesus saved you. You were something that he needed to save you? You're better than the guy who's not saved right now? We're not. We want others to know him. They'll spend and be spent. They'll often be found praying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And they are good and faithful through the trials in spite of sufferings and hardships. And they are good and faithful, even when things don't go their way or opposition comes against them. And brothers and sisters, it is really hard to be a good and faithful of Jesus Christ when you're wed to this world. It is hard. It is hard when the world has some of your heart. You know what I'm saying? I know what I'm saying because I struggle. It is hard. 
It is hard when you're given to the comforts of this world and the niceties of this world and, and the goals and the desires of this world. It is hard to be a good and faithful servant to Jesus Christ when your family means more to you than his family, the church. The family that you will spend all eternity with. Now, i got to make a qualifier here or a disclaimer. I am not saying don't love your family. A lot of pastors said I can't go to like dinner with my family. Can't hang out with my cousins. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this. This is God's family. Those who know him and are saved. And they're his children. And they're bought by his blood. And they will be with him forever. And if you're part of that, that's part of your family. And every single one another in the scriptures, in the New Testament, and I believe there's like 31 of them, that happens right there. And so love your personal family. But if this means nothing to you, if you have no engagement with these people, you're too busy, uh, you know, you don't care about what they're going through, you got a, you got a family problem. you got a family problem. All right? you got a problem of the heart. And again, I'm not saying don't love your family. Uh, your personal family, certainly do that. But this is the family of God that he's put, brought you into. And it cost him everything to put you in here, to bring you in. And it cost him everything to bring everyone else in, too. And you know what? What a love. In fact, he's going to say in the parable of, a, of, the, of the sheep and the goat, one of the, one of the real indicators that you really know the Lord is that you love his people. That you love his people. And you serve his people. You'll spend eternity with them. And we need to love them. So the call is to be good and faithful. And these are the words that every one of us wants to hear, right? Don't we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Uh, and, and the one who is uh, good and faithful is the one who has lived a selfless, committed life to Jesus Christ. The conclusion will be that they are invited into the joy of their Lord. That's the conclusion. And, and this is the great longing of the servants of Christ. This is the great longing of the people of God. This is what they're watching for. This is what they're waiting for. They're waiting to enter into the joy of their Lord. And this, of course, begs the question, what is his joy? What is his joy? We talked about this, actually. I don't see Will somewhere. But we talked about this on, on, on Tuesday night. What is his joy? Well, Hebrew 12, 2 tells us to look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And, 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 what, and what was the joy that was set before him uh, that enabled him to endure this most horrific, most horrific pounding and slaughtering, if you will, you know, uh, you know, uh, taking on upon himself the very wrath of God for the sins of his people, right? The worst day in the history of mankind, as far as men were gone. Well, this joy was the joy of him being back together with his father, right? Uh, this joy was the joy of obediently fulfilling his father's will and satisfying eternal justice. It was, it was the joy of making his people spotless and blameless, the bride ready for the bridegroom. It was the joy of conquering sin and death for his people. And no one can really fully comprehend this on this side of the grave. Uh, it is beyond what anyone can really know or experience in this life. And, and this joy is, 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 that we will enter is an unhindered joy. Uh, and, and it not be hindered by sin, our sin, or the sin around us, or by circumstances. And this joy will never be taken from us. 
and, and, and we can understand and know some of this joy in this life. Jesus says so in John 15, 11. But when he comes again, we will be in his perfect joy. We will be invited into it. Right? As Noah and his family were invited into the ark, and as the five wise virgins were, were, were invited into the wedding feast, so too, so too, we will enter into the joy of the Lord. Which is another way of saying into eternal glory with Christ. It's just saying the same thing three different ways. We will enter into eternal glory with Jesus Christ. And every true believer is going to enter in. Every true believer. Those with a great capacity and were extremely fruitful. And those with a very low capacity and were just hardly fruitful. They all enter in. You understand? We all enter in. So, so a good and faithful life to Jesus Christ and for Christ ends in the joy of the Lord. And lastly, we see the misuse of the talents. Verses 24 to 30. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping from where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I, I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. So now we come to the servant who has one talent uh, and told to go and trade with that one and make a profit for his master. And this really is the focus of the parable. This is really the focus of this parable. And instead of trading with his talent, we see in verse 18, he digs a hole and he buries the talent in the ground. And when the master comes back and says, hey, where's my money? He actually, this man actually blames the master. And he says, I hid your money because I knew you were a hard man. Hard means harsh. It means uncompromising, unyielding, extremely demanding. Uh, and, and he added that he, he knew the master reaped where he didn't sow and gathered where he didn't uh, sk- seed where, scatter seed and stuff. Meaning, meaning this. He goes, he, I know you don't do the labor, but you collect money from others who do the labor. I know this is how you operate. Uh, and because he says he knows these things about the master, he says, I was afraid. I was afraid, so out of fear, I hid your money. And then he says, look, here's your talent. Take what's yours. It's as if to say, now understand, he's, he's not saying, I'm excited. Look, excitement here. He's saying it this way. He's saying, uh, you know, hey, at least he got your money back. At least he got your money back. This should make you happy. Look, this should make you happy. Here's your talent. And, 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 and so this servant accuses his master for his own disobedience. And then he assassinates the character of the master in the process. And the sad reality is, he thinks he knows the master, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Because if he knew the master, he would know that he's not hard, and he's not harsh. He's not a slave driver, but actually, he's very kind and very generous. And many professing Christians think they know God. I know God. I've known God my whole life, actually. Right? I know God when I was seven years old. But they don't. They either see him as grandpa in the sky who just wants to give them things and make them happy and make life nice. 
or they see him as some hard taskmaster. Never happy with them, always angry because they're messing up. But either way, they don't know him because they don't grasp his character, that he is love and kindness and compassion. But he's also holy, and he's also sovereign over the affairs and every detail of their lives. He's sovereign. And because they don't grasp his sovereignty, they complain against him when things don't go their way. And they blame God for their hard circumstances and their struggles and losses. Hey, why do these things have to happen to me? Do I deserve this? Why am I always in a financial hole? Why do I always have to suffer these things, whatever these things are? Why is God doing this to me? Why did he give me such a bad spouse? Look, everybody else has a nice spouse and I got a rotten one. Why do I have to have rebellious kids? Why? Why can't I have a spouse? Why can't I get married like everybody else? Why do I have to have such a low-paying job? And on and on and on. The list is long. And listen, this is nothing new. People have been blaming God since the very beginning. After Adam sins in the garden, God says, Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? Did you eat of that tree? Right? And what does Adam say? Well, Adam blames God for it. That's what he does. Right? He says, the woman whom you gave me, you gave it to me. Now, if you didn't give it to me, we wouldn't have this problem. You gave it to me. Right? She gave me of the tree and I ate. You see what he's doing? He's blaming God. So it's your fault because you gave me her. Well, not only do people not really know God and blame God, but they also make excuses why they can't serve him. I'm just too busy with work, man. I'm working all the time. I have no time for God. Or the kids got karate, or soccer, or after school programs, or guitar lessons, or dance. Or they're too busy with their hobbies. Well, you know, I got to do this, and I go to the gym, and I go here, and I go there. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I got to go to Zumba, or 52 other activities that they do. Or they got to take care of their house. They got to clean because Aunt Millie's coming next week, and I got to make sure all the dust is gone. Or they got to take care of the family, or the dog, or cooking, or whatever. And they say things like, you know, if things slow down, if things just slow down a little bit, if life just slows down, you know, then, then I, I would love to serve the Lord. I would love to become involved in the things of God. I'd love to evangelize. I'd love to have people over our house. We could do Bible studies here. I'd love to, I can't do it now. Of course, we're very busy. But I would love to do these things, right? They would, I would love to immerse myself in the kingdom, but it's not possible now. Listen, they don't even come to church all the time. For some people, coming to church on a weekly basis is like a real hard thing for some reason. One out of two, two out of four, three out of eight. I get providential hindrances, but guys, if Christ is our Lord, he commands us to not neglect the assembling of ourselves together. What's more important than coming before and corporately worshiping the one who saved us? Is there anything more important? I get providential hindrances. People are sick. Car breaks down. I got to work. I get that. But I don't get anything else. I'm not being a legalist. I'm just saying, if he loved you and saved you, you're his. Worship him corporately. Worship him privately. But for some, it's such a hard thing even to come here. Well, come on time. Notice I put that in the bulletin, the time thing. Again, I'm not a legalist. I really understand grace and I believe I live that way. But let's give them our best. Don't stroll in a half an hour late, man. Come and worship. It encourages the saints to come together. Are you late every week for work? Again, give them your best, man. He deserves it. Love him. 
Put him on the throne of your heart in everything. A person of legalist. I'm not. I'm not. I know what some people think, though. Because I used to think that. Give him the best, man. Well, this servant represents the people who claim that they know Jesus, they believe in Jesus, uh, and they declare they're a Christian. But here's the thing. They actually don't know Jesus. They're Christless. They're like the five foolish virgins. They, they look real outwardly, but inwardly, they're spiritually dead. They're empty. And the glory of God is not their life's goal and ambition. You see, for the Christian, our desire is to glorify him. Not that we do it perfectly, and not that we don't slide here and there. Of course we do. But it is an ambition. And, and the things of God, it doesn't get their blood flowing. And they sit in churches, and they go through the motions, but there's no passion for Jesus. No surrendered life to him. No selfless service to him. And, and whatever they do that seems to be kingdom-like in some way, shape, or form, it's, it's with the wrong motive. Because it's not for the praise and the glory of God. It's not for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. They're not moved by love. They're moved by, by something else. Something personal, some sort of gain. They're gaining maybe favor with God. They're being whipped into something. They've got to do it. But here's the thing. It's unacceptable to him. He doesn't accept it. Because it's not done with the right heart. And amazingly, they somehow have justified their Christianity just as the wicked and lazy servant justified his being a servant. And that's exactly what the master calls him. He calls him wicked and lazy. A far cry from good and faithful, is it not? And, and wicked means worthless and lazy. Well, that means lazy. That's what it means. And you know, if this guy would have invested his master's just one talent, he just had one, he too would have heard, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But he didn't. Instead, he is called wicked and lazy. And he's wicked because he knew his master's will, but he wouldn't do it. His heart wanted to do what his heart wanted to do. And, and he did not want to labor for the master. And that's because his heart was never really changed from the inside out. It was, it was still smothered in sin. It was still stone cold dead. So, so yeah, he knew the master's will. But at the end of the day, he really had no desire to fulfill the master's will. And many professing believers know what the wages of sin are. They know that it's death. And they know that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. But here's the thing. They refuse to truly believe him. They refuse to forsake all and follow him. I want Jesus. I just don't want him to be my Lord. Like, don't, don't tell me what to do. Just give me the heaven part. Like, give me the, the, get, out of, the, you know, the get out of hell card. I'll take that. But I don't want to follow you. They refuse to forsake all and follow him. Well, the master says, if you knew, if you knew that I reap where I don't sow, then why didn't you at least put my money in the bank and I would have collected interest on it? If you were so fearful of me, you could have easily made some interest on my money, but you didn't because you have a wicked heart and you were lazy. And then in verse 29, Jesus pronounces a principle and in verse 30, a judgment. And the principle is that those who have, more will be given. I.e. eternal life. I.e. eternal life. Those who think, here's the second part, those who think they have eternal life now, what they think they have will be taken away from them because in reality, they never really had it. Because they were never really saved. So they were imposter servants. Or as Jesus says, they were unprofitable servants. And that is followed by their judgment. Which, which is, they will be cast into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this, of course, is eternal damnation. This, of course, is hell. This, of course, is the lake of fire. 
So you see, the stakes are really high. I think I say that every week now. The stakes are really high. And to think you're a servant of Jesus and not really be a servant of Jesus is to bring upon yourself an eternal doom and misery. It really means that. This is why Jesus said on multiple occasions, watch, be ready, make sure that you're not just a hearer of the word and you've all heard it, right? But make sure you're a doer of it. Well, in closing, let me leave you with a few ways to apply this parable, and I'll go quick. The first is to believers, and that is don't waste your talents. Don't waste your talents. Don't waste the things, the gifts, the abilities, the resources that God has given you. Don't live your Christian life on cruise control. Don't just do enough to get by. You know, go under the radar, so to speak. Don't do that. Use everything you've got, right? What does he say in Romans 12, Paul? He wants, your life is a living sacrifice. He wants everything. Use everything you've got. All that is in you in the service of the Lord. And the only thing that can motivate you to do this, here's the thing. Me telling you means nothing. You knowing it still means nothing, right? The only thing that can motivate you to live this way is a heart that beats for Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do it. You can know it, you can agree with it, you can write it on your wall, live for Jesus today. You can do all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, if your heart is not beating for him, you won't do it. You need to love him. You need to be motivated by love, not by, by mandates. You need to, yes, we're commanded, but you see, it's not, a burden, it's not a burden to love him. And in fact, when we rightly know him, or the greater we know him, or the more we're exposed to who he is, right, he becomes more lovable to us. It's not that he isn't lovable to the nth degree. He is, but we just don't know it. Well, how do we know it? Read, read, reread the Gospels, meditate, dwell heavily on the person and work of Jesus. That's it. Nothing, nothing really you know, complicated here. Meditate on Jesus, his work, his person. There's a song that says, give me Jesus. I'm not going to really sing it for you, but I'm going to tell you a couple of words. He says, in the morning I will rise, in the morning I will rise, in the morning I will rise. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And quite honestly, that's it. It is that simple. Grow in knowledge of him and pray that your love would increase because the more you know of him, the more lovable he is. And the more you love him, you'll want to serve him. You'll want to give your life as a living sacrifice to him. You won't give them, you won't be stingy when the blade comes around. You won't say no to the saints who have needs. You'll pray for people. You'll pray for you. You'll want to see him exalted in every aspect of your life, whatever aspect that is. It's based on love. Secondly, again to true believers, long for the praise of your Lord and not for the praise of men. There is nothing in this life that you could hear or receive that will in any way ever trump, well done, good and faithful servant. Listen, you can win civic awards. You can have 82 titles next to your name. All right? You could win literary awards. You could win athletic awards. You could win medals of honor. You could win the Nobel Peace Prize. Listen, you could be one of America's 10 best-looking women or men. They could literally put your face on the side of a mountain. And it pales in comparison to Jesus saying to you, Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. That a boy. That a girl. Well done. 
The world can lavish you with all kinds of accolades. And in the end, it's meaningless. There are loads of libraries and streets and wings of hospital buildings that got people's names on them, and those people are in hell right now because they didn't know Jesus. But they got a building after them. And if they could come back and they can't, they'd say, I don't want the building. Give me Jesus. Take my name off that street. That means nothing. Take my name off that airport. Take my name off that park. Give me Jesus. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you or me or how high they could elevate you or I because their standard and their motive is tainted. And, and, and all that will forever matter is what Jesus thinks of us. That's what matters. And if you're his servant and you live for him by serving him, then you will indeed hear those very joyful, amazing, unbelievable words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I know it may not seem that way to you right now. I know the world around you is not saying well done to you. In fact, they're probably saying, I'm done with you. I get that. You and I are a thorn in their side. If you're living for Jesus, you're a thorn in their side. But keep on keeping on. Keep being faithful to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in the end, you will enter into the joy of your Lord. Like that is like, it ought to like pump us up. That ought to get the blood flowing. Because Jesus is keeping us till he brings us home. Now, lastly. The great warning of this parable is for those who claim to be in Christ but show no fruit, no life, exhibit no heart for him. And you may have fooled others and you may have even fooled yourself. But see, here's the thing. You haven't fooled the Lord. He knows how you think. He knows how you live. He knows how your heart is. And to him, you are a wicked and lazy servant. See, to him. You're a wicked and lazy servant. And you will not enter into his joy, but rather you will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the great hope here is that you will honestly examine your life next to the scriptures. And for the first time, truly see your sin and repent of your sin, including your hypocrisy of thinking you're saved and not, and come to Christ and savingly believe in Christ and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then with a heart of love and passion, serve him. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, it's so simple. It really is so simple. You want us to love your son and to follow him. And Lord, we pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts to this. Lord, for those of us who know you and our hearts are given to many different things, Please fix our hearts on Jesus. Please, Lord, cause us to see him as so much greater and more lovely than we ever thought or could ever have known. And, Lord, for those who don't know him and even think they do, please, Lord, strike their hearts with fear, with your eternal justice and judgment to come, and drive them to the cross. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.